This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Hello, I'm Patrick Ryan, president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Today, I'm pleased to welcome you to a new segment in our Global Tennessee podcast series and a new effort on the part of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. It's called the TikTok Project, derived from the concept of the Doomsday Clock, a construct of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists in Chicago, who warn us about the existential threats posed by nuclear weapons and climate change. The metaphorical Doomsday Clock is currently set at two minutes to midnight, signifying the immediacy of concerns about the extraordinary dangers we face. So today, the Tennessee World Affairs Council is launching the TikTok project. It will be a year-long effort to highlight these existential dangers and what is being done or not done to address the threats. As we start this public awareness project, we salute the work of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists and its president, Dr. Rachel Bronson. In January, coincident with the annual clock setting, she wrote about the, quote, abnormal state of the world's security situation. She said, This new abnormal is a pernicious and dangerous departure from the time when the United States sought a leadership role in designing and supporting global agreements that advanced a safer and healthier planet. The new abnormal describes a moment in which fact is becoming indistinguishable from fiction, undermining our very abilities to develop and apply solutions to the big problems of our time. The new abnormal risks emboldening autocrats and lulling citizens around the world into a dangerous sense of enemy and political paralysis. So from July 1st through December 31st, we will focus on nuclear threats. Our regular community and education outreach programs will include speakers, discussions, podcasts, social media, and more on nuclear weapons. The first half of 2020 will attend to the issue of climate change. You can learn more about the TikTok project on our website at tnwac.org, including the calendar of programs. While there, please become a member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council and make a contribution. That's how we continue to provide our global affairs awareness programs to you and your community. To kick off the TikTok project, we're pleased today to share with you an interview I conducted with Joseph Serencioni, president of the Plowshares Fund. Joe was in Nashville for a town hall with us at Belmont University in February and other appearances in the community. He's been an inspirational leader in the fight to eliminate the global threat posed by nuclear weapons. In June, Joe and I talked about these issues in an edition of Know Now, organized by the World Affairs Councils of America. It's a teleconference shared across the WACA network. We now present Joe Serencioni from the Plowshares Fund, from the June 6th edition of Know Now. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Bill Clifford, President of the World Affairs Councils of America in Washington, D.C., and I am delighted to bring you another program of Know Now, our Hot Topics Discussion Conference Call. And today we feature Joe Serencioni, who is the President of Plowshares Fund, a global security foundation based here in D.C. Uh, Joe is going to be talking about global nuclear threats, and he will be moderated by my colleague, Patrick Ryan. Pat is the President and Co-Founder of the Tennessee 
World Affairs Council in Nashville, where he's joining us from. Pat, over to you. Great. Thanks, Bill. Uh, happy to uh, join the conversation today with uh, with Joe, who was here in Nashville in uh, February. So we had uh, a great uh, program with him and look forward to sharing some of that today. And uh, let me just mention, uh, as uh, Bill introduced, uh, Plowshares is a global security uh, foundation that's uh, worked for 38 years to reduce and eliminate uh, the dangers posed by nuclear weapons. Joe's the author of numerous books, articles, and opinion pieces about uh, WMD and a regular contributor to cable news conversations about nuclear weapons. Uh, he's worked uh, on nuclear policy uh, issues in Washington for over 35 years, including nine years as a professional staff member on the U.S. House of Representatives Committees on Armed Services and Government Operations, and is considered one of the uh, top experts in the field. I'll mention uh, at the outset here that uh, Joe has a podcast called uh, Press the Button, uh, a great podcast. It's rel relatively new. You should add it to your podcast uh, listening. Uh, Joe, we got a, a lot to cover for 15 minutes. Thanks for uh, joining us today. My pleasure, Pat. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's uh, let's start with uh, the Doomsday Clock, the construct of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Uh, we talked about it when uh, you were naturally here, and and uh, you're a, a regular observer and contributor to the conversations about that. Uh, tell us uh, what what time is it uh, these days? It is two minutes to midnight, which is the closest the clock has been to doomsday since 1953 when the United States uh, tested the first hydrogen bomb. That's when they were even more worried than they are now. And they, they set the clock, and I, I have talked to the, the board of scientists and uh, political figures who set it based on their evaluation of the threats from two challenges. One is nuclear weapons, which has traditionally been the, the mission of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. This was founded by some of the scientists who invented the bomb at the Manhattan Project. And then uh, about six or seven years ago, they added in climate change. These are the twin threats, the only two threats that, that threaten catastrophe at a planetary scale. And they think we're going backwards on, on both issues. The threats are growing. That's why they set it so close to midnight. And, and last year it was moved to two minutes, and this year it was reaffirmed and I think uh, called an abnormal normal. <laughs> I said, right, welcome to the new abnormal, that this is, this is not the way things are supposed to be. This hasn't been the way they have been in the last few years. They decided not to move it like 15 seconds or 20 seconds. They say, you know, when you get that close to midnight, you have kind of a real estate problem. What's the exact yeah. thing? And it, it's a metaphor, not an exact science, and they're very clear about sure. that. But they felt that they were troubled by uh, the new nuclear arms race. All nine nuclear armed countries are building new weapons. Some are increasing their arsenals, some just modernizing them like the United States and Russia. The Iran deal has fallen apart, the deal that in their view, in my view, was effectively containing the Iranian bomb, containing the Iranian uh, nuclear program, that North Korea was, was, the diplomacy was faltering. That's another factor. There was some promise there, but now it's faltering. And then there was an increased risk of war in, in the Middle East, uh, largely by the, the policies of this administration pushing on Iran, but also some of the policies of Iran pushing on its, on its neighbors. And then there's all the climate change issues, which I'm less familiar with, but basically pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, uh, tearing down some of the structures that have been put in place to reduce emissions in the United States, put us on a, a, a more carbon neutral path. Uh, and then, of course, the new science that's come out that shows that global warming is accelerating and maybe even worse than we thought. All these made for very, very somber 
press conference when they uh, announced the timing of the clock. Well, let's let's drill down on a couple of those. Uh, the Tikpoa, the uh, so-called Iran deal, um, the president uh, moved us away from the P5 plus one, the countries that had signed uh, an agreement in 2015 with uh, with Iran. Um, and we've moved not only from getting out of the Jikpoa, but also to a more provocative uh, stance uh, with uh, with Iran. And, and you've been a commentator on that, and, and the administration figures who have been involved in that. Uh, give us uh, your your assessment of where we are and what uh, what we should expect to see vis-a-vis -vis Iran and that agreement. Sure. First, Pat, I want to congratulate you on your inside the Pentagon knowledge. That's, that's what they call it in the Pentagon, the JICPOA, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive <laughs> Plan of Action. There are very few people who call it that. You, you, are, you, you are revealing yourself as an insider. Second, <laughs> second um, I thought I the deal is still <laughs> the deal is still alive. You know, we left it. But nobody else did. So United Kingdom, Germany, France, the whole European Union, Russia, China, the other people we negotiated with, plus Iran. Iran is still adhering to the deal. They, they have, you know, the deal rolled back their program to a fraction of what it was before the deal, froze it in place, put it under international inspections. So every three months, the IAEA releases a report, a quarterly report. The intelligence agencies in the United States also weigh in. That everybody agrees to, uh, Iran is adhering to it, haven't broken out yet, but we're not, meaning they're not, Iran's not getting any of the economic benefits they were promised uh, under the deal. And in fact, the U.S. is piling up restrictions, uh, declaring an oil embargo. We're putting sanctions on anyone who trades with Iran. We don't trade with Iran, so we don't sanction Iran. We sanction the European allies, Japan, India, Korea, etc., who buy Iran oil. And so we're trying to, the, the, the policy of the United States is to try to put a squeeze on Iran. So what is the point here? And this is, I'll do this very quickly. I think there's, a, there's different factions in sort of the administration, different points of view on what they want. I think John Bolton has, has is and always has been a let's go to war with Iran guy. He's, he famously wrote an op-ed to stop Iran's bomb bomb Iran, and he believes that a sharp military push could topple the regime, and he's generally in favor of that. He gets support from people like uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who are in favor of military action. There are others, and I think Mike Pompeo might be one of these, who want to squeeze Iran, want the sanctions, wants the threat of military force, but really is hoping that all that, without an actual war, which would be catastrophic, wouldn't be an easy war at all, be to make the Iraq and Afghanistan war look like cakewalks, that he right. thinks that, that the administration, that the regime is so fragile it might crumble under the pressure. And then there's um, President Trump himself, who I genuinely believe does not want a war. He understands what this would mean for his reelection chances, what it would mean for the global economy, probably triggering a global recession once you have a war in the Persian Gulf. And so I think he's playing, the, he, I, I believe he's trying to play it like North Korea, threat, 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 and then let's sit down and talk. And you've heard that from him very recently, even this week and, and last week, that he's open to talks and he doesn't want to have regime change, he says. Right. Uh, he just wants to get rid of the nukes. So those factions are all competing. You, gotta have, you kind of have three hands on the wheel at this point. It's not clear where it's going to go. Well, let me ask you real, uh, real quickly before we move to uh, another venue. What, what's your take on the announcement from Iran that uh, unless sanctions, and this, this occurred, I think, coincident with yeah. the U.S. removing the waiver 
for oil exports to places like China and India, that the Iranians came out and said that they were going to start uh, enriching uranium. What what implications does that have for development of a weapon? Right. They are trying to tell the Europeans, Russia, and China, says, look, unless you start giving us the economic benefits we were promised, there are things we can do here. We could start to slowly pull away from our commitments uh, under the deal. We could start enriching uranium to a higher level. We could start stockpiling some of the uh, uh, uranium where we're, we're limited from doing so now. We could start sliding away from that. It's partially complicated. Part of the sanctions we just slapped on Iran prohibit them from exporting some of the uranium that they're accumulating uh, over the limit that they're allowed. They can only keep 30 kilograms of low-enriched uranium, and they've been exporting it, selling it to other countries, and now that's prohibited. So what are they supposed to do with it? Well, they could just stop making it, but Iran's making these noises, trying to get some pressure on the Europeans to develop some workarounds around the sanctions so they could continue to sell oil. Um, There's not a a crisis that's going to occur this month in June, but but there will be this year. Things are building. So, so watch this space. This, this is the pot that I'm most worried about. This is the, the one that could boil over, uh, perhaps unexpectedly. Competing for your worry is uh, the situation with uh, North Korea. After the, uh, the first summit in Singapore, President Trump said that we no longer had a nuclear threat from the North Koreans, uh, but uh, we've since not seen a lot of progress in, in the conversations back and forth. Where, where are we uh, now and what do you see uh, the road ahead? Well, I support the president's move to engage North Korea. I think this is a good thing. Um, I, I was actually quite hopeful of the first summit in Singapore and then my hopes were dashed at, at the Hanoi summit where everything fell apart. I think it's right to engage. I think there's a deal there that could be made, but it's not the deal that the president at John Bolton's urging presented to the North Koreans at the Hanoi summit. That was a was an all or nothing deal. That was you, North Korea, have to have to give up your nuclear weapons now, your chemical weapons, your ballistic missiles, your biological weapons. You do all that, and then we'll lift sanctions. Well, the North Koreans are not stupid, and they talk about this all the time. They saw what happened in Libya. They saw what happened in Iraq. They see what we're doing with Iran. And the lessons they learned is if you give up your weapons, America will kill you. And so they, they want to do a step-by-step approach. And I think they're right, and a lot of the experts I consult with are, are right, that they were offering up to shut down part of their program in exchange for some sanctions relief. Uh, I think that's the way to go. That is, that is how some in the State Department and Trump's State Department want to go, but it's not what the president presented in Hanoi. So as a result, diplomacy is not a standstill. Nothing is happening. Um, you, you, people are trying to keep the diplomacy alive. Kim Jong-un has said, look, if the president doesn't, if Trump doesn't change his stance by the end of the year, they're going to go back to testing missiles, testing nuclear weapons. Th- that is, as you correctly suggested, the second most urgent threat that I worry about, the f- complete failure of diplomacy. Again, I think there's good guys and bad guys. There's different factions. I'm hoping that Trump and some of the pragmatists in the State Department can overrule the hardliners like, like John Bolton and go back and try to make a, a partial deal that will roll back the North Korean program, freeze it, and open up the possibility of reducing it step by step. 
Just a quick uh, question on the testing uh, issue. About the time of the initial summit, the Singapore summit, uh, there was a press uh, release that the North Koreans were satisfied that testing was complete and they didn't do any need to do additional testing. But that seems to be uh, something that the administration is touting as signs of progress that we haven't seen testing. What, what's your take on that? Well, they're right about that. I mean, this is better than what they were doing before. Uh, Kim Jong Un signaled at the at but the, the beginning of the year. But the absence of testing does, doesn't suggest that we're uh, out of the woods on their nuclear and missile capability, which may already be an operational uh, capability. Right, right, right. So, number one, it's reversible, and and, uh, and but number two is they stopped both the nuclear weapons testing and the long-range ballistic missile testing after they felt that they had perfected the devices. Now, have they perfected them? Well, the, the intelligence estimate in the United States is that, no, they actually need more testing, that they, we, we assess right now that they probably okay. could hit the United States with a long-range ballistic missile onto the nuclear warhead, but, but their, their confidence can't be very high. Any weapons program, any weaponeer, will always want more testing. Um, so it's good that they stopped. This is a sign of progress. It would be better if they had stopped two years ago, three years ago, rather than now. And they can also quickly, and this is what Kim Jong-un is threatening, they could resume it, and I'm sure he's getting pressure from his military and his nuclear people. They would like to start testing again. Great. Okay, Joe, we're, uh, we're rapidly approaching the question and answer phase. We chewed through 15 minutes pretty quickly. Can you just touch on your concerns about the nuclear weapons modernization? Uh, the director of DIA had a statement recently on Russia and China and uh, you've talked about the U.S. nuclear modernization. Can you give us two minutes on where we are there? Sure. If you missed the 1980s, this is what it looked like. Well, all the states were building new types of nuclear weapons, and some were adding to their arsenals. So this, we are in a new nuclear arms race. We thought we were out of it with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Ronald Reagan started the process of reducing arsenals. We made tremendous progress. There used to be 66,000 nuclear weapons in the, United, in the world in the 1980s, mostly U.S. and Russian. We're now down to 14,000, still mostly U.S. and Russian, but now it's stopped. No reductions, no reduction talks. Both sides are building new weapons, all, all countries. And all these countries see their programs as being in response to the other. Russia sees that they are building new weapons, they say, in response to U.S. missile defenses. We are building new weapons, we say, to match Russian capabilities. This is the arms spiral. Unless action is taken about this very, very, very soon, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to, to stop it without tremendous investment uh, at the highest level, the presidents, the prime ministers, etc. The problem for the United States is not so much that these new weapons and others are building represent a new, categorically different threat to us. It doesn't. Once you have a few hundred nuclear weapons, that's plenty to destroy a country. The problem is that right. if we try to match that, we're going to pile up a bill of $1.7 trillion over the next 25 years, money we should be spending on more on conventional military requirements as well as domestic needs. Yeah, I know our listeners can get more from your Press the Button podcast, but we're going to turn to uh, questions from uh, the network of World Affairs Councils. And I want to remind everybody to identify themselves and their council affiliations, and please ask just one question, no, no long speeches, and press star six to remute. So if you want to ask a question of uh, Joe Serencioni, president of the Plowshares Fund, uh, press uh, star six and uh, pose your question. Joe, while we wait for the first one, I'm going to uh, toss one out here. We we had a, a uh, early uh, submission from Lisa Brown from the Hilton Head. She wanted to know about the risk of nuclear-induced EMP to our electrical ah. grid. 
Yes. This gets a lot of publicity, especially with some conservative groups like the Heritage Foundation who are concerned about EMP, electromagnetic pulse. Newt Gingrich wrote a whole book based on this, a fictional account, but based on an EMP threat. There's been an EMP commission. This has been something that's been around for a long time. In the 1960s, the John Birch Society was warning about the EMP threat. One, it's real. So a nuclear weapon produces a burst of radiation that can short out electronics that are nearby. And then nearby could mean within hundreds of miles. And so the threat is, or the idea is that a, a, an adversary would detonate a very large nuclear weapon over the center of the United States and fry all the electronics in the United States, bringing about, according to these uh, people who warn about it, the end of American civilization. The truth is, it's not that bad. It's not an end of civilization event, and we've done a lot of testing on this. Um, it, it, does, it, it does cause shortages in some electronic equipment. We did a famous test of a, a hydrogen bomb in, uh, in uh, I think it was 1983, uh, 1963, that resulted in some lights going out in Honolulu, some temporary telephone shortages 900 miles away. But this is an overblown threat. It's not as serious as, as critics claim. And, and the real bottom line is, why on earth would a country waste a very large nuclear weapon by detonating one of them over the United States? Why not hit a city where it would do uh, far worse damage? And of course, it wouldn't affect our military equipment, which is hardened against these threats. So anybody who did that to us would be, would be faced with an immediate and certain uh, nuclear retaliation. So the, the, there's something to this but it's nothing to worry about. It's not something our military worries about. It's not considered a key threat to the United States. Okay, we're still uh, open for questions. Uh, hit uh, star six and uh, ask a question of uh, Joe Serencioni. Well, Bob Larrick in Charlotte. I had worked with the UN NGO community on a lot of these issues. What do you think of the new... Uh, Russian-Chinese alliance and the effect that are they uh, really helping the North Korean situation and why aren't we encouraging an end to the Korean War and reproachments to a more sane relationship between the North and the South that there are plenty of traditional weapons. We don't need the insanity of nuclear weapons there or any other place. Those are two questions in one and they're both very good, Bob. Uh, the, the first is you know, as, as the U.S. has kind of pulled back from the world stage, it's left a vacuum, and others are filling it, particularly China. And Vladimir Putin's uh, diplomatic offensives uh, has gone very well, and he's reached out to China. These are two countries that share a border, of course, and have a lot of adversarial relationships, but they are starting to cooperate, uh, economic cooperation, some diplomatic cooperation. They are cooperating in, in, even in the Middle East where Russia has sort of a military interest and China has a huge economic interest. So that it is worrying and we should be doing more about it and we're not. Uh, China on my list is like, you know, I don't consider them a, a military threat that is a threat to the territorial integrity of the United States, but they are certainly uh, have, exhibit adversarial behavior and they certainly need a much more comprehensive approach than what we have. On North Korea, you know, the, the South Korean government headed by uh, President Moon wants a peace treaty, 
wants us to declare an official end to the Korean War, uh, which, as you know, ended in a truce. We never really ended the war in 1953. Uh, the, and as you point out, what the, what the Koreans are concerned about, the South Koreans are concerned about, is any kind of war. There are enough rockets and artillery tubes within range of Seoul that they could kill, by certain estimates, several hundred thousand South Koreans in the first day of fighting. This is a level of destruction we haven't seen since World War II. So that's why the South Koreans are keen on, yes, solving the nuclear program, but concurrently, at the same time, moving towards a peace treaty, moving towards more peaceful relations with North Korea. That whole approach is in jeopardy by the collapse of the nuclear talks um, within, between the United States and North Korea. So the U.S. should do more in that direction? We should be definitely doing more in that, that direction. And so one of the people, uh, groups that I work with quite closely, are pushing for a peace treaty between the United States and North Korea by 2020. And they've mounted a campaign. They just was very large demonstrations, uh, pro-peace demonstrations, in South Korea just last month uh, over this. Uh, they're optimistic they can get it. Um, I don't know. Great, great question, Bob. Uh, just a reminder to callers to remute after you ask your one question. Uh, hit star six uh, to remute. Uh, any other uh, questions for Joe Serencioni of Plowshares? Uh, go ahead and uh, press star six and ask your question. Yes, I have a question. Uh, Paula Struckman from uh, Western Colorado. And I guess I don't understand. If my neighbor had a pile of rocks and was threatening to throw a throw them at me, why wouldn't I want a pile of rocks too? Ah, right. Well, this is the essence of deterrence. So the idea, that's exactly right. So your, your adversary, your potential enemy or maybe enemy has weapons and, and, one, and, and what you want to do is have enough weapons that deter them, that stop them from writing them, that there's known consequences. You throw that rock and I'm going to throw a rock right back at you. In fact, I'm going to throw more rocks at you than you throw at me. That's the essence of deterrence. Many people believe that deterrence played a key role in keeping the peace during the Cold War, preventing a new war in Europe. And I think there's truth to that. The problem is that it's not as simple as just one person seeing another person and seeing if they're throwing the rock. What we're talking about is a, a system of, of mass destruction that, that one rock could kill a city, not just hit an individual, and you're not sure if the other person has thrown a rock or not before you decide to throw yours. We're depending on computers, command and control systems that are notoriously vulnerable. We have a Cold War that's been dotted with false alarms where the United States came very close to launching nuclear weapons because we thought we were under attack. We thought they were throwing atomic rocks. It turns out to be a faulty a computer chip that triggered it. It turns out to be a, a, a training tape that was inserted into NORAD, and all the screens lit up, and we thought we were under attack. Fortunately, or on the other side, the Russians thought they were under attack in 1995. For the first time, the Russian military opened up the nuclear football, put it in front of Boris Yeltsin, and said, press the button. We are under attack. He didn't believe them. And it turns out that was a mistake. They had misinterpreted a weather rocket for an ICBM attack. So that's problem number one. You have the risk of accident and miscalculation or a madman. Maybe it's in our country. Maybe it's in another country firing those weapons on a whim, on an order. So that's, this is a system that is so fraught with accidents, 
uh, miscalculation or madness, as John F. Kennedy said, that you want to get rid of the rocks. You, you can have a strong defense without threatening global destruction. That's the problem. So can you do that? Can you ratchet down the tensions? Can you ratchet down the pile of rocks until you can get to a point where you have enough confidence that you can eliminate the rocks altogether? That's the trend we've been going on since Ronald Reagan, since the 1980s. That's the trend that stopped right now. And that's why people are worried about intentional or unintentional nuclear holocaust. Well, now I know where we got the phrase rocketry. Oh, sorry. We're open for questions. Press star six, and for our previous callers, if you could make sure that you uh, remute it by pressing star six after your call. Uh, go ahead with your question for Joe Serencioni. Pat, if I could jump in. This is Bill. Sure. Um, hi, Bill. Hi. First, I want to let the callers, the participants know that we will have Sheila Smith, Senior Fellow for Japan Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations on June 19th to discuss her new book, which is Japan Rearmed, a, a related topic. And Joe, I would like to ask you, given that the, the political campaign season is heating up, what the Democrats have in the way of a uh, policy on new weapons, no first use, uh, arms yeah. control treaties, that treaties seem to be uh, more ripped up these days than extended. What avenues do Democrats have um, in, the, in the presidential campaign on this issue? This is a small element, but it's such a vital element that it deserves a great deal uh, of attention. The candidates are starting to speak out about this. Uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, led the charge on this with a speech at American University on November 29th, and she called for – she had a three-part nuclear policy she wanted to implement. One, no new weapons. So she wants to stop the Trump administration request for new battlefield nukes that could be used to fight a small or limited nuclear war. Number two, she wants the United States to adopt a policy of no first use, that we would not be the first country to use a nuclear weapon. We shouldn't be starting a nuclear war, she says. And three, she wants more arms control, not less. Instead of walking away from the Iran deal, the Ronald Reagan's intermediate nuclear forces treaty, the INF treaty, it seems to be the administrations letting the new START treaty. Again, this is a process that Ronald Reagan and then H.W. Bush started. We're letting that process die, and if it ends in, 19, in 2021, it'll be the first time since 72 that there haven't been limitations on U.S. and Russian forces. And those three elements, you know, prompt, declaring that you won't be the first to use a nuclear weapon, number two, no new nuclear weapons, and three, more arms control, that's been adopted by Adam Smith, who's the Democratic chair of the House Armed Services Committee. He's marking up this week on, his, on the budget request, and he's putting elements of all of those into the bill, including scratching funding for some of the new nuclear weapons, prohibiting funding for uh, weapons that would violate the existing arms control treaties. You've seen Bill, uh, Bernie Sanders just this week come out and say we have to get back into the business of uh, like Ronald Reagan of trying to eliminate these weapons. Uh, Joe Biden on the stump in New Hampshire just, let's see, two days ago, was asked a question by a voter and said that he, he's long favored a policy of, of, of what they call no first use, not being the first. So you're starting to see this discussion take place among the Democrats. I think there's a general consensus around those points and more. 
it'll be up to them to hammer out a policy that they can bring to their convention next summer and then develop a plan that they can implement. The crucial period is starting now all the way through the campaign season, and then what's your plan for implementing that in the first month of the new administration? History tells us if you don't hit the ground running, if you don't have a plan uh, and you're ready to go year one, then the inertia takes over, the bureaucratic elements take over, those who have a financial interest in the programs continuing tend to grind you down and they win in the long run. That's what happened to Obama. Great to know. Thank you. I think we have a minute or two for a last question. Does anybody want to check in with a question for Joe Serencioni, press star six? I could have taken longer to answer that question. I was rushing through it. Okay. Well, how will Trump combat it? Well, you know, Trump doesn't really have a strategy as much as he has a series of impulses and instincts, and very often those serve him well. I mean, I think his general view is to is to talk about on all sides of the issue on this. We should get rid of these weapons, but as long as everybody's got them, we're going to be, as he said, at top of the pack. Um, we're going to build more. His budget request is enormous, uh, both the military budget overall, $750 billion, biggest defense budget we've had in, in, in peacetime, if you can call this peace. Uh, and the nuclear budget is is growing, and this is hap this what worries our military chiefs is this bow wave is coming, a procurement bow wave they call it, where we've ordered more weapons than there's room in the budget to pay for, and the fear is that there's going to be a crunch coming mid 2020s, especially when we start slipping the new uh, nuclear uh, subs in the water. Those are big ticket items that's going to crowd out, for example, conventional shipbuilding, destroyers, frigates, aircraft carriers that the Navy needs. Nobody knows the way out of this. Um, Trump is kind of kicking the nuclear can down the road, asking for everything, approving everything. There's going to be a train wreck, a, a nuclear train wreck in the middle of the 2020s if we don't change course soon. Bill, uh, do we have time for one more? Or the, I, we're at 2.32. If you've got one or anybody jumps in. I've, I've got one quick one, Joe. Uh, yesterday here in Nashville we had, uh, we've got Navy Week going on, and the CEO of the USS Tennessee a ballistic missile submarine was here, and, and he, uh, in his uh, brief to a, a lunch group, said that uh, the the cost and the budget of uh, strategic deterrence was well worth it when you consider the expense of uh, great power conflicts, which are, are virtually un, unknown since uh, nuclear deterrence. So what what say you about the yeah. uh, the evaluation of uh, cost benefit? Sure, this comes up a lot, and it's no. The Pentagon has spent a lot of money on how to message on nuclear weapons. So they've done studies. They've done the Center for Strategic and International Assessment (CSIS) has done a study for the Pentagon on how to talk about nuclear weapons, and this is one of their talking points: that nuclear weapons keep the peace. So this, and, and there's some truth to that. So it's not it's not completely wrong. I would say two things: that overestimates the 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 deterrent role, and it sort of negates all the other things that we have done since World War II to keep the peace. The, 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 the NATO alliance, for example, the security arrangements. I mean, why don't France and Germany go to war anymore? Then it's not because France has nuclear weapons. It's because that we created a security structure that prevents that war. It has almost nothing to do with nuclear weapons. It's 
there. But there's also the economic uh, ties that we built, the interrelationships now that exist between countries uh, econ economically. There's a whole whole the institutions we created from the World Bank to the United Nations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of things we did since World War II. It's not just nuclear weapons, and of course it's our conventional military strength too, and our willingness to use it to to keep the peace to respond to threats. But but. Even so, there is a role for nuclear weapons in that, especially when other guys have nuclear weapons. The key is that you don't need this level. That answer right. doesn't say, therefore, you need to have uh, 4,000 nuclear weapons in the operational stockpile, which is what we have. That's enough so to destroy the world approximately, oh, 10 times over. So you can save so the answer, you can go the down. It's complicated. Well, you so yes, we need nuclear subs. I'm in favor of the nuclear subs. Do we need to have 12? I think we could do with eight. And that's when you okay. get into a cost-benefit analysis, and we can we can you can save money and still keep your nuclear weapons, just not Great. as many. Well, Joe, this has uh, been a, a very uh, enlightening uh, opportunity to, to share your insights and perspectives with uh, the World Affairs Councils of America across uh, the United States, and I appreciate your time today, and I appreciate uh, Waka for inviting me to guest host this. Uh, just a reminder, uh, uh, we've been talking with uh, Joe Serencioni, president of the Plowshares Fund. You can catch more of Joe's perspectives on his podcast, Press the Button, and you can uh, you know, always uh, dial back up this uh, Know Now session on the World Affairs Council of America website. Uh, thanks to uh, Bill Clifford and the staff at Waka for for having this, and thanks for the questioners. And lastly, uh, thank you again, Joe Serencioni, for taking your time. My pleasure, Pat. Thanks for having me on. It was great visiting you in, uh, in Nashville as well. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to our debut of the TikTok Project, our year-long effort to increase awareness about the threats posed by nuclear weapons and climate change on our existence. Visit the Tennessee World Affairs Council website at tnwac.org for more information on events associated with the TikTok project, and to become members. I'm Patrick Ryan, and you've been listening to the Global Tennessee Podcast Network. Thanks, and have a great day. This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, technical advisor Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee, as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy, I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit tnwac.org slash podcast for more information.